0: Our scripture passage today is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 25 to 35. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, why don't we begin our time together in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, I know we all come. This morning, from all kinds of places, and our hearts, some of them are restless, some of them exhausted, some of them eager, some of them chipper, and I pray, God, that as we come to your word, that your spirit would do what your spirit, you've promised your spirit would do, that it would convict our hearts of sin, guide us into the truth of the gospel, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, minds that long to be enlightened, hearts that are eager to be impassioned with the truth of the gospel for us as the family of God. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, some historians have thought that he was a bald, bow-legged, and kind of a stocky guy. More George Costanza than ever Captain America. And what really set him apart was his unheard of zeal which, when it was misplaced, had the capacity to imprison widows and even kill teenagers. He was the kind of guy who didn't just talk about justice, he'd flip tables. He didn't just pray for righteousness, but he put evil in its place. And he was on a road trip to ransack what he thought was another cult gathering when what seemed like a bolt of lightning knocked him off his high horse. And sitting in the dust, looking into the light, he hears the words, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, you know, the guy you're persecuting. And you thought I was a lunatic. You thought everybody who was following me that said that I'd risen was a lunatic, but I am alive. Join me. And for the Apostle Paul, that particular moment, that was a game changer. And that unheard of zeal now impassioned him to travel the world for Jesus rather than against Jesus. He spent his time mentoring young church leaders, planting churches under candlelight, writing letters to friends and churches, some of which we still have and make up a third of our New Testament. And as you read the words of the Apostle Paul, his fragile words hit the page, I think we begin to see just how human Paul was. You see, his joy was coupled with brokenness, his passion intermixed with pain, Many times what he thought were his failures overshadowed his successes. He was real. But one thing, one thing that he never second-guessed, one thing that he never thought was amiss in his life, one thing that he he never saw as needing improvement in his leadership, one thing that we don't talk about all that often is his singleness. His singleness. He saw it not only as incidental, but crucial to his calling. And when we come to this letter this morning, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a little urban church in Corinth. We've seen time and time again, as we've been journeying through a church through this letter, that they're a lot like us. This little church, they're a beautiful mess. I mean, you have some folks in the church who want to get married, but they feel like they can't. You've got some folks in the church who think that well, they've renounced marriage and they think that their celibacy has made them better than everybody else. You have some folks who are in marriages and their marriages are frustrating and we talked about those a couple weeks ago and some were so frustrating that they led to divorce and some folks in this congregation in Corinth knew the sting of losing a loved one. And they're all asking the question, okay, what does it really look like to be single and follow Jesus? Is, Is singleness a viable option? Is it the only option? Honestly, should we forego marriage at all? And as we come to our text that was just read for us this morning, whether you're married and you're connected with singles, whether you're newly single or you've always been single, whether you chose to be single or it kind of chose you, he speaks to the whole church family and he says, hey, singleness is a good gift only because of Jesus and his church. Singleness is a good gift only because of Jesus and his church. And that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Um, Especially in our Christian Western culture where we think that following Jesus equates getting married and having 2.5 kids. And we hold up romantic comedies as if they're our fifth gospel, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Love Actually. And we start quoting chapter and verse that a a life without sex and marriage is really a life without love. And we start quoting folks like Sigmund Freud that really life is endlessly frustrating. Well, I think when we come to Paul's liberating instructions from the gospel here, it's going to challenge a lot of our assumptions. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them when it comes to singleness and marriage. And Paul, he's going to walk us through as we walk through our text this morning and telling every one of us that singleness is a good gift only because of Jesus and his church. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles or your devices or however you say that um, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. If you were using one of our community Bibles, it's in page number 956. So let's start with this first sticking point. Singleness is good. Singleness is good. Does anybody really believe that? It's kind of like saying kale is delicious, right? No one actually believes kale is delicious. They endure kale. And throughout the world... And even within the church, we can reinforce this skewed viewpoint on singleness. Many times by placing singles in one of three categories. If you're single, you you fit in one of three. You either are on your way to marriage. Maybe you'll get there someday. And if you're not on your way to marriage, if you're a woman, you're seen as embittered, neurotic, controlling, taking out your sexual frustrations on everyone around you. If you're not married and you're a guy, right? We say, oh, you're pathetic. You're a commitment phobe. Um, One of these days, you'll stop bleeding your sexual frustrations into video games and some other aspect of fantasy and get with the program. And we put people that are single into one of three categories. And as best as Christian singles try to fight against these stereotypes, still too many times within the church we communicate the message, you know what, if you're a single person, you're a little bit less fill-in-the-blank. You're a little bit less fill-in-the-blank. You're a little less complete. You're a little less important. You're a little less knowledgeable or helpful. You just don't have the full-orbed human experience yet. So, I mean, why do I need to listen to you? You're a little less valuable and less than, after second service, we need help stacking chairs or something, right? And we can't just gloss over this because when we look at the state of the United States, over half of U.S. adults are single. And less than a quarter of evangelicals over the age of 18 single. That's not because everybody's getting married when they turn 19. It's because they're hearing these messages from the church, which actually do not correlate with what the Apostle Paul is calling us to here. And they're leaving. They're leaving. And I think what breaks my heart the most is Paul does value singleness so much He even defines his life. I want you to look with me now in chapter 7, verse 25. He starts off, Now concerning the betrothed, that sounds like an old word. Sounds like old English. Um, I don't know how many people use that when they're having coffee. Hey, I was talking to my betrothed the other day. Um, But some of your translations have the word virgins, right? What the word really is communicating is meritable availability. These are folks that are available, they're single, and they're ready to mingle, okay? Um, And what Paul's trying to say here is, look, some of you may have been pure, and before marriage, chastity was always valued, but it wasn't always the case. And so Paul's just talking to all singles here, and he's saying, hey, look, concerning the betrothed, this is what I have to say. And I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Which is Paul's way of saying, look, when Jesus was on earth, we don't have any Christian tradition passed down to us that Jesus spoke specifically about this issue. But I'm an apostle, and in chapter 7, verse 40, he says, look, I've got the Spirit of God too. I've got the authority to speak into the church, and I'm someone who's trustworthy. So listen up to what I'm about to say to you, because I I love this church and I want to care for this church. So listen to me, those of you who are single. This is what Paul says, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good... There's our ornery word, for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And I want you to think about just how groundbreaking this is for the Apostle Paul to say this. He's a Jewish guy who has the Torah kind of on repeat in his mind. Um, Everywhere he looks, he interprets it through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And now he's experienced the resurrected Jesus, and it's kind of almost obligatory in his culture to be married. And he's got Genesis 2 going through his mind. It's not good for a man to be alone. It's not good for a man to be alone. And then Paul says, hey, if you're not married, that's good. That's okay. Okay. It's actually just as good a pathway as marriage. And he goes on to even say that it's his own preference for his own life. Not because, like the Corinthians were saying, that it's inherently superior, but because of where God's taking history and his goal for humankind. Look with me now at verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. He says brothers, but he's talking to the whole community. Brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives or husbands live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. And that can sound really weird if we take Paul literally. My wife would kill me if I started acting as if I, was, I had no wife, right? This is, so what's Paul doing? He's using an ancient form of dynamic rhetoric to emphasize that the world, the way it is, is on its way out. The world as the way it is, is on its way out. And it shouldn't be the key defining marker of how we live and how we see ourselves. He puts everything into this eternal perspective on what God's doing and where he's going. Marriage he puts there. Remember Jesus? One of the, Some of the scribes came up to him and said, Hey, all right, Jesus, let's see what you got. Um, let's say this woman marries a guy and then he dies. And this was common Jewish custom. They would marry the brother to kind of produce an heir. So, so her husband dies and so she marries his brother. And then that guy dies and then she marries his brother. When they resurrect and the kingdom comes, what's going to happen? Is she going to be married to all three of these guys? And Jesus goes, no, no, no. You don't understand. When the kingdom comes, people will neither be given in marriage nor take marriage. And we don't really understand all of what's awaiting us and what that exactly means. But what Jesus does mean is that marriage isn't ultimate for us here in our relationships with our spouse. It's not the most key defining relationship in how we live our lives. But instead, what is, is the coming kingdom and our coming king, Jesus, when he returns. That is supposed to be the primary defining marker of our lives as followers of Jesus. I want you to see what he doesn't say there, what sometimes we say in conversations or have said to ourselves. He doesn't say, "Look, your biological clock is ticking. You better find a spouse. You better hurry up." Paul lives according to a different urgency than that. The world, the way it is, is on its way out. You're not defined by how many kids you have, you're not. The goal of life is not finding a spouse. The goal of history is devotion to God's kingdom and his coming king, who came, who lived, who died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and has promised to come again. That is the core defining element of who we are if we are followers of Jesus. Yeah, Gabe, but that's tomorrow. Today, singleness is really hard. And I know, even as I talk about this, sometimes as a a married person, my conversation what I have to say can be disqualified. And I'm hoping to communicate what Paul is communicating as a single person. But Paul says singleness is good. He doesn't say it's easy. He says it's a good state in the time between, but as we wait for Jesus, but it's not easy. He doesn't say marriage is a cakewalk either, actually. And there are, you know, many times as married folks, we say marriage is the best option. Um, But that's also, and there are multiple factors here, but I think that might be contributing to why there are over 50% of divorces of those who get married in our country. Because they feel the overwhelming burden to get married when really they haven't found the right person and they feel like they've got this timetable that they've got to get married to someone and it's just going to break apart. And I think another reason too is we're ashamed to admit that there are difficulties in every marriage so that when we get to the difficulties of singleness... We exclude it as a viable and even a desirable option like Paul does. Listen, what Paul thinks about where God's taken the world, singleness is as good a pathway as marriage. But it has its own suffering because we live in the present distress. A fallen, a broken, and even at times antagonistic world to the person and the work of Jesus. And some of you know this pain really well. Some of you know singleness didn't, you didn't choose singleness. Singleness chose you. And as you thought about your life and as you pursued a spouse, you felt the heartache of pursuing and then being rejected. Some of you have felt the heartache of longing for children and not having children. Some of you have felt the pain of, of feeling invisible, of being overlooked in a coupled world as an individual. And look, there are so many complex elements to the pain of singleness. This is true. And it can look as if it's so painful, there's no way it can be good. And Paul wants us to know that singleness isn't singled out here. Because in everything that's attainable in this life, all of life's symphonies remain unfinished. There is a great climactic note that's still to come. Sometimes as singles, you can think that that marriage is going to be the answer to the ache within our hearts. But there's still going to be a longing. In the greatest of marriages, there's still a longing for the final note. There's still a twinge of loneliness. When you get the best and the greatest TV, you're still scouring the ads for the next one that comes out. The LED that just happens to be a smidge sharper. When you get that promotion at work, now you've got your eyes on the next leg up the ladder or the next pay raise, the next affirmation, the next project, the next happy hour after the project. It's because every one of those elements is looking to something greater, to something that's still to come, to someone who's still to come. And I love what Ron Rolheiser says in his book, The Holy Longing. He writes, How do we live in an incomplete world without demanding that our lives, our spouses, our friends, our homes, our vocations, and our jobs give us something that they ultimately cannot give, namely the final symphony, full consummation, That peace isn't made by just a stoic acceptance that we cannot live it all and we can't have it all in this life. It's made by living our completeness in the face of a future promise. This world, this kingdom, we don't look to this world to define us that idolizes sex and makes marriage for so many the climactic end. But we look to God's coming kingdom and our coming King Jesus who gave it all so that one day we might have it all with him, in him. This world as it is, it's on its way out. But in God's coming kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. Singles aren't waiting to arrive. We're all waiting to arrive. We're all on the same point, living in the time between. Singleness is good, as good as marriage, Paul says, but he won't stop there at saying it's good. He goes on to say that singleness is actually a gift, and I want you to turn back, actually, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 through 8 here. And he says, Now, as a concession, this isn't a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. I wish that everybody was single. What? But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good, once again, for them to remain single as I am. And most of us don't believe that either. Singleness, A gift. What's going on? I recently heard of a book titled, If Singleness is a Gift, What's the Return Policy? Right? And, and, I, think, and I think we feel that, don't we? Because as soon as we hear the word singleness, we think of all that we have to give up. We think about having to give up sex, intimacy, companionship, and those are realized losses that we feel. And it starts to sound much more like a curse ever than a gift. And just because you have the single, the gift of singleness, for some of you, that doesn't mean even those desires will go away. Those desires may still be there. And I think the crux of the issue actually comes in how we understand gifts that are given to us from God. So many times we see a gift as something that's given to comfort me. Instead, when God gives us gifts, he gives them to equip us to comfort others. And you see how that's for our benefit, right? Because if we are given gifts just to benefit ourselves, then we've got one gift that benefits me. But if we have gifts that are given to equip us to benefit others, then in a community centered on giving gifts that are given for others, you, get, you become the beneficiary of hundreds of gifts. Of whoever's around you, you become the beneficiary of their good gift, And so it becomes an even better situation when we embrace what God has called the community of faith to be and God's understanding of the gift of singleness. Your singleness is a good gift for the good of God's people and the community in which you find yourself. Your singleness isn't your own. Just like your marriage, if you're married, isn't your own. And Paul begins to unpack this in verses 32 through 34, how singleness uniquely empowers uh, Christians to engage in God's purposes and his mission. And he summarizes it here in verse 35 of chapter 7. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the law, to the Lord. Not to the law, to the Lord. He says, look, husbands and wives, there's a unique stewardship there where you've got to invest time, you've got to invest margin and money, and to continue to cultivate that intimacy. That's a real thing. And it requires actually stepping back from the community at times to have that one-on-one intimacy. That's important. And yet... He says, as a single person, you have the opportunity for undivided devotion. And I know there's a lot of baggage with that. And you say, yeah, I'm freed for this. Thanks a lot, right? And look, I love marriage. I'm married. I love my wife. If you're single and you're pursuing marriage, you know, ask yourself the question, will I glorify God best as a single person or as a married person? Because marriage isn't the given better option. But we need to ask that question. And then if you say, yes, I will possibly glorify God better as a married person, then pray to God that he would provide a spouse for you that helps you run and follow Jesus all the more. And glorify his good name. It's not just about getting married. It's about glorifying Christ as we wait for Christ. And marriage can either be a resource or even a detriment to that if we have the wrong perspective going in. And even with all of that, celibate Paul, remember, it says, no matter the circumstances. Remember this church in Corinth, there were some who were slaves, there were some who were free, some who chose to be single, and some in their culture. Culture chose their singleness for them. And Paul says, look, no matter whether this is a short stint or a lifelong quest, your singleness, you as singles, are actually a gift to the church and a gift to your community. And I, I love a James Martin. He's an author in the New York Times. Wrote in an op-ed piece a little while ago, He says, celibacy or singleness is not only an ancient tradition of asceticism, but more important, it's an ancient tradition of love. Celibacy is, in short, about loving others. Those who opt for celibacy choose it as a manner of loving many people deeply in a way that they would be unable to if they were in a single relationship, a single marital relationship. Celibacy, singleness, and love can flourish together. And it can become a gift for the church and a gift for our community. And I wanted to highlight just a couple ways because that can sound so abstract and really neat. Um, I wanted to highlight a couple real-life stories of folks in our downtown campus who are doing this. There are many examples on how the gift of singleness is being lived out, but I just want to tell a couple quick snippets of folks who are doing this well. It looks like two single women choosing to be housemates and using their extra margin of time and finances to house and care for and be a family to teenage foster girls. It looks like the single guy who being underemployed leverages his extra time to serve at various homeless agencies in our city and has become a voice of zeal for our homeless brothers and sisters. It looks like the single woman who puts in the extra hours at work to care for the members of her team, to get the job done well, all the while leading hospitality here In our church family. It looks like the single guy who goes the extra mile to be a listening ear, a helping hand, wise counsel, and a trustworthy friend to anyone who approaches him, all the while crafting some of the best coffee in KC, right? (laughs) And to those of you who are single, I really want you to hear this. There are certain ways you can sharpen this church that no one else can. There are certain ways you can sharpen this church in your vocation and your calling and your gifting in singleness at this point in time that no one else can, that we can't as married folks in the same regard. And I just want to highlight two. There are many, but I just want to highlight two. For example, we need you to demonstrate that sex doesn't have to enslave us. And that sounds funny, kind of, and weird. But daily submitting your desires and celibacy to Jesus becomes a real-life example in our community that we don't have to give in to every whim of our desires. The desires that we think are at the end of our happiness, that if we just chase them down, and instead you choose to submit to God and rest in His resources, you show us that we're not just the sum total of our desires, that sex is an ultimate, and that God's worth it. We need you to do that. We also need you to remind us that no human being can heal the core of our hearts. No human being can do that. To remind us that our hearts really are restless until they find their home in Christ. And God alone can do this, not your spouse, not your friend. And as we've said, already everything that's attainable in this life is kind of like an unfinished symphony. And when we start going and looking for that climactic note in our boss, in our spouse, in our family, even in our community— Then we're gonna find ourselves frustrated. We're gonna find ourselves vengeful and even resentful when we don't have that resolve we're looking for. Married people, we can expect too much from our spouse. Some of you married your best friend and some of you didn't, okay? And that's fine, that's not a requirement for marriage. But here's the deal whether you married your best friend or not, they shouldn't be your only friend. You need others in your relationship to continue to strengthen your marriage. You need single friends. And first and foremost, you need Jesus at the center of your marriage. He's the one that's going to quiet the restlessness of your heart and point you towards restful community. And singles, you can remind us that the good life, it it isn't marriage, period. It's following Jesus and knowing him. So I hope you know, man, if you're a single, you're a gift to this church. This church needs you. We need you. I need you. My family needs you. And I pray that we as a church, we become the kind of place that regardless of your marital status, you feel like you belong, you feel like you're loved, you feel like you can serve, and you can grow. Because that's what we're called to. Look, Paul says singleness is good, but it doesn't mean it's easy. He says it's a gift, but really it's a gift for others. And that's kind of what happens when we follow Jesus, isn't it? When we start loving what Jesus loves and Jesus calls us to love him, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself, we become other-focused first. And our gifts become gifts for others. But at the end of the day, singleness is only a good gift because of Jesus and his church. Singleness is a good gift only because of Jesus and his church. And, you know, when we come to singleness, once again, we think about what we're missing out on. I got some emails from folks this past week that I just cherished as you opened up in vulnerability and your singleness and some of the the difficulties and the complexities of your pain that you're walking through. And I hope and I pray that we become the kind of community that can wrestle through the multidimensional feelings of loss. But in the first century, one of the greatest feelings of loss and singleness actually wasn't sex or intimacy, but it was the loss of family and children. And for some of you, that may still be true today. And you know, Jesus does something pretty unbelievable. If Jesus was very God of very God and orchestrated his life before he even came to the planet, and all of the ways in which he could have organized his life, he spends 33 some odd years as a single celibate guy. 12 between 30, we really don't hear a whole lot about him other than he was a carpenter going about his vocation, growing in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and men. And then at age 33-ish, he dies, as Isaiah 53 prophesies, without any biological children, without a wife, and as he's hanging on the cross, he didn't give Mary any grandchildren. Was Jesus just immature? He didn't just quite get it. Of course not. What Jesus does is he redefines the family while he's here. There's an interesting moment in Jesus' life Where he's talking with the disciples and he's with the crowd, and and they come and they say, Hey, Jesus, your mom wants you, and your brothers and your sisters, they want you. And Jesus goes, Who are my mothers? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? It's those who do the will of the Father. Those are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters. And Jesus now says the greatest bloodline is the one that f- runs fresh with the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have a new family founded in Christ where God is our Father and Jesus our Lord and our Savior. And that's why even Paul in our passage he addresses the folks he's writing to as what? Brothers. And other times brothers and sisters. We're family. We're family. It's at the core of who Christ's community is. Our mission at the very beginning is we desire to be a caring family. A caring family. Not a perfect family. We're not utopian here, right? This is a real family. We seek to be faithful, but it's really messy. Um, We've all got kind of off Uncle John's and weird Aunt Charlotte's, right? I mean, this is family. This is what it is. As folks, you don't always choose to sit by. I mean, I get that, that. But we're family, and we love each other. We're called to. Some of you guys know my story. Um, I probably wouldn't be here if the church wasn't for the family, if the church wasn't the family. I grew up a good percentage of my life with an absent father um, and a single mom. Um, My sisters worked. My one sister went full-time at 16 to help pay for our bills. And in the church, I had some older guys who said, you know what, we're not going to let our little brother fail. And so they sought me out, they were intentional with me, they prayed for me, they pointed me to Jesus, they mentored me. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the church, for the body of Christ being the family it was called to be. And we all need the church to be that family, don't we? And one sense it's harder than ever (coughs) to be the family. In our culture, our calendars are more full than ever. We're more transient than ever. We take more trips on the weekends than ever. Our jobs take us further than ever, and people can be inconvenient and annoying. I heard somebody say, people are the worst. Sometimes people are the worst, you know, and yet we got to fight to be the family, and we all need the church to be that family, whether you're With a family and you've got multiple kids and you think you're doing great, you need the church to be that extended family, to speak into your kids. And we'll talk about why that is here in a minute. If you're here and you've got a family and you've got kids and it feels like it's on the tail end of breaking down, you need the church to speak into you, to ask questions you don't want to even ask of yourself. If you're single and you're content with singleness, you need the church. If you're single and you're not content with your singleness, you need the church. If you're widowed, if you're orphaned, all of us are family in Jesus if you rest. And his sacrifice on the cross and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. But that doesn't mean the church is a flourishing family automatically, right? It takes some work. It takes some steps by us. And look, there have been gobs of books written on this. There's no way I'm going to cover everything I probably should say in this message. And there's no way I'm going to give you a detailed list on every one of the steps we should take. But I want to just give us three next steps to help us as a community Be a better family, to highlight singleness as a good gift and marriage as a good gift. It has to happen with a healthy family. Okay, so here are these three things and we're going to be done. First, take advantage of structured family time as the church. Fight to be here on Sunday mornings and in a community group throughout the week. (coughs) If you're not in one, um, our next session, spring session, starts up the week after Easter. That's just a couple weeks away. Start creating margin on a weeknight engage it. You won't be sorry at the end of the day. Trust me. I'm in one. I love it, Man, I've never been more cared for, you know, as a pastor being cared for by community group leaders. It's such a good ministering team to my heart. We've got great leaders here in our groups. Get into a community group, and try to be here regularly on Sunday mornings. If you're here once every three weeks, it's kind of like starting over. It's like, hey, how's, did you have a dog? No, you have two cats. What's going on? You know, who are you? Um, But if you're here regularly, it starts to, and engaging in a community group, it starts to provide emotional pacing and trust for people to start asking those questions, to dig into your life, to really get to know you and give you a warm embrace when they know you kind of look down because they know what it looks like for you to be up. Otherwise, they're just learning every step of the way and having to relearn every three or four weeks. So take advantage of structured family time. Second, take initiative to seek out friendships in the church as well. While we think Sunday mornings and community groups are important first steps, they're not the last steps, okay? They're important ongoing steps to cultivating a caring family, but we also know that they're not the end-all be-all of relationships. For some people, they say, you know what, I feel lonely. The answer is not going to be to that loneliness. Well, just get plugged in and you'll be great. That's not a safe answer, and that's not an honest answer. You can be in Sunday morning, you can be in a community group, and you can still feel utterly alone. You don't have to be alone to feel alone, right? But you have to take initiative with each other in friendship. And I want to do something. I want to talk to the married folks first, and I want to talk to the single folks, okay? Married folks, and I know my wife, Allie, and I, we've got work to do here. Married folks, invite singles into your family life. Invite them over for dinner, when you go to outings, like an activity at the zoo, who doesn't need extra eyes and hands when you go to zoo with a couple kids, right? Bring them in. You'll be better as a family with them around, and they'll be better because they get to see a family, at least fight to follow Jesus. It doesn't mean you have to be the perfect family, but just trying to make it work as they're seeking to follow Jesus and resting in his grace. So if you're a married person, bring them in. You know, in our culture, It kind of pushes against the nuclear traditional family. And so as a church, we can overreact and respond and almost make an idol of the nuclear traditional family and cut out the wider church family. Don't do that. Your family will be better by inviting singles in. Now, singles, you need to take initiative too. You need to be reaching out to families, asking about engaging in activities, going and grabbing lunch, engaging kids. Did you know That if a child knows that an adult, know, five adults know a child's name, their likelihood of staying engaged in church after they graduate high school skyrockets. Skyrockets. Five adults knowing your children's name. Singles, you've got a job to do here. You can know the children in our midst. And you can help and cultivate a family of families and a family of singles here at our church. And I just want to give a couple um, just key pointers for friendship. I know that sounds weird, but we don't do that great in our culture. Um, at least I know I've got a lot of work to do there. So I just want to give you three pointers just on overall friendship. Don't be shy, but don't be pushy, okay? When you're in your community group, say, hey, you seem like an interesting person. This may seem awkward, but you want to grab coffee? <laughs> hey, we started having a really good conversation. Do you, do you want to go get a cup of a coffee? You want to go grab lunch together? I just want to get to know you better. Take initiative. Don't be shy, but don't be pushy. And maybe it's Sunday mornings. You clear your schedule right after our gatherings and say, hey, I'm going to go grab brunch. You want to go? And those of you who are a little more gregarious than others, why don't you take the onus a little bit? Um, Just because someone may be shyer or quieter doesn't mean they're not wanting someone to reach out to them. Okay? Just to give you a heads up. Secondly, um, maybe you need to organize your asks. And that sounds weird. Let me explain. I have a friend of mine, uh, Thomas. We've been friends since seventh grade. He's a pastor in Birmingham, Alabama now. And, you know, in one sense, you think so much about friendship should just be organic. Man, you should care about me. You should call me more often. And it just doesn't happen because life happens. And sometimes you need to organize those asks. And so on every third Thursday, we call each other. We're accountable to each other in ways that two pastors can be accountable to each other. And we encourage each other. We pray for each other. But every third Thursday, we've got that marked on our calendar. And at first, it felt weird, but now every third Thursday rolls around, and it feels weird if I don't make that call. The organized gave way to the organic there. But sometimes you've got to take through that, you have to make that awkward step of organizing it and feeling overstructured for a friendship for you to continue to cultivate that friendship. And then, lastly, and this kind of goes without saying, but it needs to be said um, forgive and apologize a lot. For some reason, with friendships, we think that, you know, in marriage or even a work relationship, if somebody wrongs us, we kind of have to just keep dealing with them. you got to keep going. you got to forgive. I mean, you, you're spending the rest of your day with them. But with friendships, somebody wrongs us. They didn't show up for a lunch date. You know, they, they, well, I was going to go to this concert. They said they were going to go to this concert, and then they couldn't make it to the concert. And then you feel slighted, and you just end that friendship. You Facebook to them, right? Um, <laughs> no, that's not what friendship is. That's not Friendship. Friendship is forgiving as you yourself have been forgiven. Being persistent and consistent and engaging those around you who have invested in you and you've invested in them. And be ready to take the onus of apologizing. Hey, look, man, I'm sorry. I came 20 minutes late. Work has been, I'm just really sorry. I value your time. You're a good friend of mine. And I shouldn't have been late. I just want you to know I care about you and I'm sorry for that. Take the onus. Start with an apology there. It'll just go a long way in friendship in general. Um, so, Take initiative to seek out friendships in the church and take advantage of structured family time. Lastly, be intentional with solitude. Now, if you're here this morning and you're single and you're like, Gabe, I'm alone enough. Thanks a lot. Um, It's not a matter of being alone. It's what you do when you are alone. And celibate Jesus was brilliant at this. He didn't just spend time with his disciples going from event to event to event, finding his identity and activity he didn't find his identity in the, act, the excitement of the crowd. But as the son of God, he found time early in the morning to be alone with God. Intentionally. And so when we're alone, are we intentional with our solitude? Are we in scripture? Are we praying? Once again, finding our primary identity in God our Father and Jesus our Lord and Savior. And it's in those moments you can kind of own your pains You can challenge unrealistic expectations with the truth of God's word. And then you can confess your own brokenness and rest in God's grace. Be intentional with that solitude. That's so crucial. Can you be alone well? Can you be alone well? Take advantage of structured family time. Take initiative for friendships in the local church and be intentional with solitude. But even after I say all of that, some of you are sitting here, and I get it. I'm trying to get it, and I've been there. <coughs> you say, Gabe, I'm just alone. I'm tired of sleeping alone at night, and I just don't feel like anybody gets it. Well, Jesus gets it. Think about it. 33 years. Jesus went to bed alone every night. Sure, he had his family, he had his mothers and his brothers, and he had the disciples, but he went to bed alone every night. And then when he went to the cross to take our shame and our guilt and our sin upon himself, he experienced the utter depths of isolation when he himself says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If there's anyone who gets it, Jesus gets it. He gets it. And we can come to him, the one who has died, taken our penalty, and then rose again to create a community centered on himself, a new family of resurrection life so that we don't have to be alone anymore. And we can actually be strong when we are alone. And we can look forward to the day when his coming kingdom will reign supreme and all wrongs will be right and we'll be before God's presence and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes and the only memory of tears of loneliness will fade into the background of eternity. That's what we have in terms of our promise in the gospel church family, singles. Singleness is a good gift only because of Jesus and his church. Jesus gives it. Paul celebrates it. They both lived it, and we can help. We can help. Let's be the church. Let's be a caring family, but let's first pray. Heavenly Father, I never cease to be amazed how your word speaks into every square inch of my life and the lives of those who are around me. You love your church more than any of us ever could and we seek to love each other shaped by the gospel. I pray that by the power of your spirit these wouldn't just be interesting words and anything that was overly cultural and less biblical that we would forget. Anything that helps us in faith and godliness to glorify your good name, you would sear into our hearts in the best way. Lord, may you be glorified. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.